Welcome to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. This is Professor Floros, and I am joined in the classroom today by Dr. David Greenstein, who is a historian at the UIC Library, and we have a whole list of things to talk about today. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom on Tuesday, October 29th, 2019. You're listening to Professor Floros on the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live on radio.uic.edu. You can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. It is my honor to welcome into the classroom today Dr. David Greenstein, a historian at the Richard J. Daly Library at UIC. Professor Greenstein got his bachelor's degree in history from Vassar College and his PhD in history from our sister university, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's been a lecturer at UIC since 2016, and he teaches classes such as The Daily Chicago, From Mid-Century to Global City, City at a Crossroads, Local, National, and Global Politics in Chicago, 1968, and Global Encounters in Chicago. So, Professor Greenstein, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Hey, glad to be here. So, I'm really interested in the classes that you're teaching because they're about Chicago, but they all seem to have an international angle. So, A, what got you interested in the international aspects of Chicago, and what kind of topics do you cover? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm interested in... um Chicago and its relationship with the world, partially because when I did my graduate work down in Urbana, um, my main area of research was that, you know, I'm a historian of American foreign relations mm. and the history of the United States and the world. So I focused on the way that Americans have interacted with uh, other parts of the world. Um, so when I got here and was using the archival materials we have, which are mostly about Chicago, I wanted to still incorporate some themes about, you know, how can you find um, global history or the history of global interaction in the local archive that's really just about Chicago. So, um, but for me, part of it too is that the story is always about not just one place. I mean, if you think about Chicago history, um, are we going to talk about it, you know, only stopping and starting at like the actual borders of the city, you know, then would you not talk about suburbanization mm. or if you're going to talk about the history of immigration to Chicago, does that start when somebody like gets off the plane at O'Hare mm. or does it start where the person came from and why they left? So um, part of that too is about thinking about different scales and why there are boundaries to, to disciplinary discussions. Like this is just about Chicago or just about the United States. Um, or if you have to rethink those kind of boundaries. You know that I teach American foreign policy. Yeah, I knew you were like a international kind of politics person, right? I don't think I, I knew you were a historian. I didn't. I don't. I did not know that you did the history of American foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we should talk afterward about collaborations we can do. Okay. Cool. Okay. So one of your classes is about the local, national, and global politics in Chicago in 1968. So can you talk a little bit about why 1968 was such a consequential year? Um, I know the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago that year, but what else was going on that made 1968 consequential? Yeah, so, I mean, aside from the convention in Chicago, 
it was also a major year when you think about the black freedom movement in the United States. Okay. So just earlier, Martin Luther King had uh, moved to Chicago to live here for uh, over a year when he was taking the civil rights movement to northern cities, um, thinking about issues like um, housing in, in places like Chicago. And, um, you know, when he got to Chicago, he found a lot of times that the sort of tactics he used in the South didn't work because um, they wouldn't, um, you know, the the government in Chicago and in Illinois didn't react by saying, like, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with you. You have to get out of here. Segregation forever. You know, they basically said, yeah, this is this all sounds great. We want everybody to be equal. Um, so there wasn't that kind of like confrontation mm -hmm. that he was uh, expecting to have. But um, did they actually mean it, though, when they said that? Uh, I mean, I think that a lot of it was like a strategy where they would basically say, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. And it does in theory, but then nothing actually happens in, mm, in okay. practice ever. But so in 68, he was working on the, the Poor People's Campaign, which was a movement to connect civil rights to broader economic issues. Um, and then he, he got shot in April 1968. And here in Chicago, there were... Uh, like uh, widespread urban uprisings in response to the death of King. So it was a really important time for Chicago in terms of like pub a public that was really frustrated by the lack of uh, progress in, in civil rights and fair housing and things like that. So 68 was really important for that. And then, I mean, aside from just like, you know, the actual mm, confrontation at the convention, you know, Chicago was sort of the focus of, everybody who was involved with the anti-war movement and various kinds of protest movements for that whole year they were sort of all looking forward and building up to to being here in Chicago so um, so a lot of those activities were taking place in Chicago in the run-up to the Democratic National Convention yeah I mean and even people who were in other places like at college campuses around the country like they were organizing looking forward to being in Chicago later in the year even okay. if they weren't there uh, yet too so it was sort of like everybody's Chicago was everybody's sort of focus for those kinds of issues so it was it was the center of um, the presidential election when they had the convention here but also sort of the center of questions about what's the U.S. role in Vietnam and what's the U.S. role in in the world and things like that too that year yeah I don't think that's not the story that's usually told about Chicago in 1968 hmm. all this other stuff besides the convention yeah, I mean, it, the convention was definitely one of the most important things that year. So, Okay, so you are a historian, mm -hmm. and you teach for the library. Now, I had never heard of such a thing before. Is, yeah. is this common at universities around the country to have uh, subject experts as lecturers for the library? I've never really heard of it. Okay. before i think it's somewhat unusual okay but i mean it, it, it used to be common for subject experts like say a historian to to work as an archivist in an archive with materials uh related to their area of expertise so that used to be sort of where a lot of archivists came from okay um, are you the only lecturer at the library um no, there are other people that oh. that uh but I'm, I'm the only one that's that teaches um these kinds of classes okay yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, yeah. what what is the benefit for UIC generally or the library in particular to have a history professor 
teaching from the library rather than the history department. I mean, I think that the the thing that makes these different from sort of a regular history class in the history department is that the classes are based around the archival materials we have uh, here on campus. So um, in a regular history class, you might learn all about a topic, but you might never um, go see stuff about that topic in an archive. You, you like might, primary source you documents. You might work with primary sources that have been reproduced or, um, or you know, uh, available online or something like that. Okay. Um, or, I mean, in a, in a rare case, they might send you to go look at a primary source in person, but it's not sort of typical. And e- even if you do, I mean, the difference is that these classes are based starting from the collections. So I do research in the collections, and then I think about what kind of um, themes and courses could these collections be the basis for. So they're really focused on that, and the classes meet. Some of the classes I do, uh, every meeting takes place inside of special collections at the library. So they're working with documents every single time they're in class. Um, and oh, for wow. uh, undergraduates, it's a yeah very unusual experience because a lot of times they never get to go into a place like that. Yeah, I would think, I don't think I ever, I still don't think I've ever been, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been, I've walked into an, a special collection, but I haven't ever used one i guess i haven't needed to maybe i should so is there anything in the special collections to do a history of american foreign policy or are you kind of stuck with chicago and illinois hmm. well i'm the wrong person to ask about that because i think yeah it's it's almost all stuff about chicago and illinois but um i would say that th- there are the history of foreign relations and international relations happens even in those local papers sure. but we do have like for example we have the papers of the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Do you? Um, which is now the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Yeah. So that's a really important collection if you're interested in that. I am interested in that. What? Yeah. Um, what? Going back a long time? It's mostly the older stuff. I don't think we have their newest stuff. It probably just goes up to like the 80s or 90s. Okay. What's mm. included? Like when you talk about papers, like mm-hmm. what are you talking about? So... A lot of the collections we have are the papers of either an individual or an organization like the Chicago Council. And usually they're the records that that person or organization created in the course of doing whatever it is that they did or their normal business. So it probably has meeting minutes. It probably has um, like press and public relations materials, like if they did news releases about something like that. Probably has like their organization records about like um the who sp- members know, were members like who worked there those kinds of things fight their finances fundraising that kind of stuff might be in there and then um you know it would have mm, you know like so for example in in richard j daly's papers um it has the stuff from his office as mayor it has letters from the public that people sent him Mm. it has uh, material from all the different city departments like if they sent him copies of reports and things like that and then he was also the head of the cook county democratic party so there's a separate set of papers um, about his role as the head of the democratic party too so would like his daily schedule be in there yeah so for some years they have his daily schedule that his secretary kept and other collections they have that kind of thing too yeah is there anything juicy in any of these that you know about? Like, would they, and would that get in there accidentally if there was something juicy? Like, are they very careful about 
what they hand over or is it like after they die someone just loads up a cardboard box and brings it in right right so it depends like for different organizations so sometimes what happens is like if you're an organization you you don't necessarily keep things like ah we should file this all away for posterity because someday somebody is going to want to look at this in an archive so a lot of the stuff that they keep is just the stuff that they needed to continue to operate like we might want to look back on our old correspondence we might keep subject files about stuff that's important issues that are important to us that we want to go back and look at so they're keeping it because they're they're using it and things like that all the time so there's like a process of them discarding things before they've even considered giving it away somewhere because maybe they have stuff that they're not using anymore okay right because it's just the stuff that they've kept and accumulated that's useful to them um but then there are probably places that say okay now we're going to donate this let's just pick out the stuff that we think is important to donate to the the library Mm. um but there are definitely some places that just say here's this warehouse full of stuff and you can have it so how I mean I okay so I'm asking you all these questions knowing that you do not manage the special collections yeah okay but I'm just you're here and the person who manages the special collections is not so and then I just forgot my go back go talk about the juiciness while I go back and think about <laughs> <juiciness>. what question <laughs> question I might have um so there are I think you know there are all sorts of like exciting things in the different various collections. can you give an example. Like uh, in uh, Richard M. Daly's papers that they're processing right now, um, they're working on processing the like objects and artifacts that were donated along with the like pieces of paper. Okay. And so like they recently um, processed a box of Richard M. Daly hot sauce, <laughs> which I think is very exciting. Okay. I mean, I guess that goes with the juicy theme. Um, uh- popular. <laughs> another popular item is. Um, we have fish stuffed mounted fish that Richard J. Daly caught. No. Mm-hmm. Are they on display? No, but you could come and see them. You could request to see them. Why would somebody want to do that? Well, uh, so a lot of the stuff that we do get, you know, may not have like extremely important historical value. A lot of it is like gifts or awards that these people got, mm-hmm. something like that. But um, we've had people use that kind of thing for research before, like. I know uh, of a researcher that was looking at um, Mayor Daly's relationship with the Latino community, and they had given him a series of different kinds of awards. So he actually did want to see these, like physical plaques or mm. gold, like glass sculpture things that they had given them, that he was using for his research. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I remembered my question. So now that everything is digital already, mm. does that um, mean that we're likely to see more stuff? in future politicians and organizations papers or less because they can be more selective about what they send yeah so i mean the collections that they get these days include like a mix of paper and digital files and it is going to be more stuff it's going to be millions of you know documents um when they're digital too but i mean with digital stuff it's sometimes it's harder to sort through and edit what you would want to give or harder for the archivists to sort through and um, try to make available the stuff too, just because there's so, so much of it. And is there any effort or so again, I know you are not an archivist yourself, but 
you know, I tell my students in the <clears throat> in the foreign policy class, they have to their final paper is researching two decision, two presidential level decisions toward a particular country. It could be different presidents, could be mm-hmm. the same president, all that stuff. And so I tell them that they need to like look at the presidential get something like a presidential document from from the presidential library. Mm-hmm. Now, until Obama's is built, there isn't a presidential library in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. So they're relying on being able to access access those files digitally. So is there an effort to take, I mean, obviously not the artifacts, but the, the papers that are not currently in digital format and digitize them? Or is that not worth it? Or just there's just too much to do? Yeah, it's tough because so like, for example, in the Richard J. Daly papers, they've digitized now all of the photographs that are part of the collection. But in terms of digitizing all the pieces of paper, I think it's still sort of up in the air with the way that archivists are thinking about it. And you mentioned the Obama project. I think that a lot of them are looking to see how that works or if it works. Um, but because when you think about a collection like that, it's like millions and millions and millions of pieces of paper. And then you've got them online. And then what happens? Like how is someone supposed to look through them? And uh, it's sort of mind-boggling how you would even arrange it in a way that would make sense to somebody. So there's a lot of issues that are challenging with it, too. Like, imagine that you have this huge collection of papers, and it's 1992, and you decide, well, digital's the future, so you scan them all and put them online, but now they're online in, like, this weird, low-resolution mm. 1992 website. Okay. Uh, that That's going to happen. If you did it this year, it's going to look like that in the future right so okay and that's not it's whatever resolution they were scanned in on right you can't just automatically make that a better resolution so you have to and then you have to think about like making them updating their file formats if in the future people access pictures or files in a different kind of format than they do now they have those have to be updated and things like that and they have to be stored on servers that you have to pay for so i think it's a lot more complicated than Mm. Uh, than people think um, so I mean right right now in terms of long-term preservation like a piece of paper is still the best way hmm. to preserve mm-hmm. something it's going to last for for hundreds of years right yeah in a box in the basement of the library yeah okay so. all right you are listening to the politics classroom on UIC radio where music and culture ignite I'm professor Floros and I'm joined in the classroom by Dr. David Greenstein a historian at the Richard J. Daly Library here at UIC. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more. You are listening to The Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live at radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and you can reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Today in the classroom, my guest is Dr. David Greenstein, a historian at the Richard J. Daly Library here at UIC. So, David, before our, the break, we were talking about different issues surrounded by having papers in the archives at the UIC library. So, as I was looking at the at the list of all the political collections that the library has, which is impressive uh, in my estimation, I noticed that when they're talking, you know, they list who the person is, and then they give a the number of feet 
that their papers are. Mm-hmm. Wh- what does that mean? Why are they measured in feet? And how do you figure out how many feet some papers are? Yeah, so what what that number refers to is the number of feet um, on a shelf that the papers take up. So they're in boxes and they're on a shelf. And if you measure that whole distance, okay. that's the number of linear feet that the collection takes up. Okay, so it's so, not like page end to end no, and how long that it's if be. you stand the boxes on a shelf okay so they're in these what they're called hollinger boxes it's usually two boxes per foot but the reason it lists it on there is because it gives you an idea of how big it is sure. so if you're if you're thinking oh i'm really interested in this person and then you see on there that it's 1.5 linear feet you know that's going to be th- only three boxes of material mm-hmm. whereas daily's papers you know, it's 700 or 800 linear feet. So you can just imagine uh, it's it's uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxes of material. So it's useful for researchers to just have a sense of how much of this stuff is there. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot with a question. So last week on, in the classroom, I had uh, Professor Chris Mooney, who is the W. Russell Arrington Professor of State Politics. And I see that uh, the UIC Library has the W. Russell Arrington Papers, 3.2 feet of them. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to know who W. Russell Arrington was? I have no idea. I mean, it says here that he was a state rep and a state senator in like the 40s through the 60s. Huh. Okay. Well, that's the next set of papers you're going to have to yeah, dive into, to look, I guess. But there's, a, there's a lot of people on there that, you know, I'm, I'm not even familiar with. It's, we have a lot of people's papers. Okay. So last week... It was announced that Bill Daly, who was Bill Clinton, one of Bill Clinton's uh, secretaries of commerce. He was also uh, the chief of staff for President Obama after Rahm Emanuel came back to Mm -hmm. run Chicago. So it was just announced that he will be donating his papers to to the UIC library. So do you anticipate any of your current classes changing as a function of getting those papers or you know, does having three different dailies papers give you any ideas for a new class? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to do, you know, other classes in the in the future that maybe make use of more of them. I know that um, Bill's papers are mostly about when he was um, Secretary of Commerce, I believe. Okay. The ones that he's giving to the library. Um, uh, so, yeah, hopefully I could incorporate them into a future class and And Bill has come uh, several times to talk to my classes, which is great because he'll tell them, um, you know, what he remembers about his his father and about what was happening in the in the 60s and 70s um, from his perspective. So the students really that's like a highlight of their classes for sure. Hmm. Well, and, you know, the Daly family continues to serve in politics, right? The second mayor Daly and Bill Daly's brother, right, is a county commissioner yeah Cook county commissioner john daly he comes to my classes sometimes Does he? too and so. uh their nephew patrick daly thompson is mm-hmm. the alderman for the 11th ward mm-hmm. so there's might be more daily papers in uic's future yeah okay so you're you you mentioned and i'm very interested in this you teach your classes in the library in the special collections mm-hmm. and your students are in the special collections Every class period? Is that what you said? Yeah. For most of my classes, the one I'm I'm teaching now meets once a week in a regular classroom and then once a week in the library. So it's sort of like a 
a lecture in a lab. Okay. But the other ones I've done, they just meet every time in the in the library. So what has been the students' reaction? I mean, do they take your classes knowing specifically that they're going to be digging into papers, or is that like a pleasant surprise for them? What what has been their reaction to getting their hands on this history? Yeah, so I think so, a lot of them probably didn't don't realize when they signed up for the class, but and a lot of them are not like history or politics students. These are um, they're honors college students, and they are mostly from science disciplines or business or other kinds of things like that. That they're sort of taking these as like an elective in addition to their major classes or things like that because they're interested in Chicago or. It fits in their schedule. It fits in their schedule, <laughs> yeah. So I get that a lot. <laughs> um, but their reaction to working with the papers is, I think, uh, really interesting because they'll tell you at the end that um, getting to touch and go through the physical pieces of paper um, is, like, an important part of what made it, uh, like, meaningful and exciting for them. They, I think that if you asked them, they would tell you that if you – looked at like reproductions of the papers in a book or if you looked at scanned versions online that they wouldn't have had like the same kind of excitement about it so getting to go through and you know physically touch and hear and smell things that were in the white house you know or yeah. in the mayor's office is something that is uh you know an, important to them something that they find that like valuable do they get more excited about the artifacts like the f dead fish and wh what other yeah. uh, so you said awards I you mean, said mayor Daly's. i'll tell you something fish. interesting something that's interesting i think is that to them even some of the pieces of paper are kind of like mysterious artifacts so mm, i've had students who are not familiar with letterhead and they'll say what is this that's at the top of all these pieces of paper oh my goodness or um you know they've never s seen or even heard of a telegram Okay. Before, so I'll tell them, you know, it's like a text message, except <laughs> you have to call up an office, then they write it down on a piece of paper, then <laughs> the, somebody physically carries it to your friend and hands it to him. So it's not like a text message. But you still have to try to use less words. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so um. they're not maybe familiar with that kind of thing. Or, you know, I played them a film that was uh, from when Mayor Daley was in office in the 60s, this like, city produced film about. Um, housing and uh, I said you know here's the actual eight millimeter film that we have um, but you know today I'm going to play it on a CD and some of them were like what's the CD oh, so no. that was even an uh, interesting moment <laughs> you know I was in uh, class we were doing uh, it was an international organizations class and we were talking about Amnesty International and some of their campaigns around the world and one day I just I brought in pieces of paper and I said here are five different campaigns Amnesty is doing here are some markers here's some paper like draw pictures for people who are in jail in other places and I said then we're gonna put them in an envelope and put a stamp on them and put them in the mail and there were students who had never addressed an envelope oh sure and I thought I'm really old I mean another issue they have is that I mean all the letters say people write letters to the mayor you know they're handwritten and some of them are written in cursive, and students aren't really familiar with reading that kind of handwriting the way that maybe they used to be students, college students. So, so one of the one of the um, 
so in addition to teaching, you also are a, a curator of exhibits. And I'm going to ask you what a curator is in a second, but I want to skip to you're working on or did work on the rich, the Richard M. Daly Oral History Project. Mm -hmm. So are these the kind of, I mean, obviously not students don't know what a CD is, but like, I mean, that's kind of like a weird thing that would be interesting to keep for posterity. So obviously this is going to be more about his political life, but when people listening to this oral history project you're putting together in 30 years, is there, is it going to be like, wow, they did stuff like that? I mean, is that one of the benefits of an oral history project? Yeah. And you get sort of mm, anecdotal or additional information that you wouldn't get from just looking at somebody's files they can explain their motivation behind something you get like a sense of who that person was because you get to listen to them talk or in this case their video recorded so you get to see the person oh, wow. talk and explain so so are you wandering around with a camera recording people no these are they're done by professional videographers uh this is uh we interviewed um 45 people that were active in city politics or business uh, when um, Richard M. Daley was mayor or in national politics. So we, we also uh, interviewed uh, Barack Obama and George W. Bush to get their perspectives on issues related to his mayorality, too. So, so wait, so you, what, flew down to Texas and asked questions of George W. Bush? And, uh, an interviewer that the library hired. Oh. Did you get to do any of them? So the library hired a person to actually conduct the interviews. Yeah. But I, you know, was the, we were there. We met a lot of the people. We did uh, the research for the interviewer to give him a sense of what kinds of issues to ask about or the questions to ask. So you did all thing. the work, but you don't show up on any of the videos. Well, he's not in the video either. But it's, his voice it's, is. It's the person is the main, the main thing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'd want to get on TV. Um, okay, so so what is a curator? You curate exhibits. What what is a curator? What do you do? How does that work? I mean, so in this in this context, I mean, what I do is um, I'll do research in a collection or several collections of material. Like right now, we have an exhibit up about the Equal Rights Amendment mm -hmm. in Illinois. So I looked through about 11 or 12 different collections of material we have related to the Equal Rights Amendment, like uh, National Organization of Women's Papers, e Equal Rights Amendment Illinois, League of Women Voters papers and things like that that we have here and I looked for important um, themes or issues that we wanted to present in the exhibit and then uh, based on that research I chose individual documents and artifacts that would appear in the exhibit and then I sort of write the narrative of the labels and things like that that appear in the exhibit. So do you get to suggest different exhibits to do or does somebody at the library say, hey, we should do an ERA exhibit. David, get to it. It's a mix. And a lot of times we do them um, based on um, certain kinds of events or anniversaries. So, for example, this ERA exhibit we did to mark the one year anniversary of when Illinois finally ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, which was in June 2018. Um, you mean ratified it again? Well, Illinois never ratified it. I th we just I just heard a story last week where it was an original like signer, and then they unsigned it. 
No. Some states, some states did that, but Illinois never uh, ratified it. It was one of the most contentious hmm. battlegrounds at the time. Um, the anti-ERA opposition was headquartered in rural Illinois here. And that was when George Ryan was governor. I'd have to check. Or Speaker of the House. Yeah, Speaker of the House. That's right. All right. Well, I'm going to have to go yell at Professor Mooney because I think he led me astray. All right. We're going to take another quick break. This is Professor Floros in the politics classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, streaming live on radio.uic.edu. I'm Professor Floros, and in the studio today, I have Dr. David Greenstein, a historian at the Richard J. Daly Library at UIC. We don't have very much time left, but I wanted to talk about one more of the exhibits that you curated. This one is the National Organization of Women Chicago Chapter. And the title of the exhibit is Don't Iron While the Strike is Hot. So do you can you give us a little insight into that title and kind of what that exhibit was about and what it included? Yeah, the title came from uh, an event that they held uh, called Women's Strike for Equality, where women were the idea was to not go to work for a day um, and to meet in the loop and have a rally to um organized for equal access to employment and equal employment pay and benefits and things like that. So it's one of the slogans that they used um, at that rally, sort of a play on the don't strike when the iron is hot, but it's about women's roles. Right. So, you know, while the strike's going on, come out and support it kind of thing. And don't maybe perform your traditional role. as Gender role. Yeah. So what kind of... um, artifacts are in or in are it were how long do exhibits usually stay up sometimes they stay up for just a few months um sometimes they stay up for a semester it really depends also on like if there's fragile material that shouldn't really be on display or exposed to light for a long time it might be less time okay Um, but so in that in that exhibit um it was to mark their 50th anniversary when they were founded the national organization of women and uh there was stuff like uh, buttons, T-shirts, posters, um, like flyers, and uh, things like um, some of the newspaper columns and uh, want ads in the newspapers that they were organizing against, um, photographs from their rallies. Um, some of the really interesting things that I didn't know about, you know, I've uh, studied gender history and protest movements, but, you know, and I know that there were all these different kinds of um, inequality that women faced in the 70s, um, not having equal access to um, restaurants, for example. There were men's only restaurants in really? Chicago. But I didn't know that. Um, were there really? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, w- men's only because there was, like, risque stuff going on? Or just, like... Just, like, this restaurant is for men at l- only at lunchtime stuff like that or just at all times it's a, it's a men's restaurant that sounds but awful. I, I didn't know that there was um men's only flights on what? airlines so for example united airlines ran two flights a day from chicago to new york that they were called executive flights and only men could purchase tickets on those flights why what 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 <laughs> so i think if you and asked, I'm, I'm sure though that the flight attendants were women of course were women so i think if you asked somebody why they were doing that it was to have a 
space for like male only camaraderie where you could say interact with flight attendants without offending women passengers that is insane yeah so that was one of the things that they organized against was uh men's only flights men's only restaurants um here in chicago but they were the chicago chapter was mostly focused on employment issues Um, some of the members had come out of the labor movement and uh, that was what they were most active in equal access to employment that sounds really interesting and how long was that exhibit up for a semester, I okay. think, yeah. Can you describe? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that I have, I've never been in the special collection. So, like, is it a big room? Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, like, it, does each collection get its own room? And it's just kind of like stuff all over the place. Like, how does and and could I just walk into any special collections room and poke around? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So. One of the really cool things about special collections here at UIC is that we're a public uh, university, a public research institution. So our special collections are open to anybody, to the public. Hmm. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a student. You don't have to be affiliated with a university. Anybody can walk in off the street and ask to see any of the materials we have uh, in special collections. And that is not normal. Like at other places like the Newberry Library or Chicago History Museum or the University of Chicago. They can charge you to get in. They can say, we don't want to let you in. They can say, only certain people can view this collection. So it's really cool that we are open to everybody, no mm-hmm. matter what. So anybody could walk in. What does it look like? It's, it looks like there's a reading room, basically. So it's a room with tables and chairs. And you would go into that room, talk to them about what your research is, what you're interested in, and then they would retrieve the materials Okay. And bring them out to you. Okay. Yeah. So if if I said I want to see the uh, National Organization for Women T-shirts, mm-hmm. they'd like go into a back room and pull out the T-shirts. Yeah, into a back room or a basement or <laughs> an offsite storage facility. Oh so no! One thing that's would be uh, important to know is that if you were to contact them ahead of time and you tell them what you're interested in, then when you show up and you say you want you say I want to see the now T-shirts on Thursday at noon, then when you show up at Thursday at noon, they'll have them sitting there waiting for you. Mm. So you wouldn't have to wait for someone to go retrieve them. But if you, if you have a specific exhibit, those artifacts would be on hand, right? So if I went, if I went during while the don't iron while the strike is hot exhibit, Mm -hmm. if I asked to see something that was part of that exhibit, it would be there, right? Well, the, the exhibit materials are on display like in an exhibit case. Okay. Like, like at a museum or something. Okay. Um, so then there would it's be... So behind glass. Yeah. So okay. then there would be other materials in the collection that you could ask to see. Okay. But like that t-shirt would be up on the wall behind okay. glass. Okay. So yeah. I couldn't ask to try it on and get a selfie in it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we could... Maybe if you just came by sometime, I could I could hook you up. Ooh. You heard that, Chicago. No. Okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, we've run out of time. My guest again has been Dr. David Greenstein, historian, lecturer, not quite archivist extraordinaire. Thank you, David, so much for coming in and sharing uh, what you do at UIC. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom on UIC Radio, where music and culture ignite. Please join me next Tuesday at 4 p.m. when I will interview Spencer Long, 
who is the Director of Student Leadership and Civic Engagement here at UIC. So that's all I have for this week. Class dismissed. <laughs>